0: Our scripture today is Genesis, chapters 32 and 33. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to meet your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks, and herds, and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said. I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milking camels and their calves, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till, until the breaking of the day. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell upon his neck and kissed him, and they wept." And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if, you have, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, hear the word of the Lord. In J.I. Packer's book,
1: Weakness is the Way, he recalls a Peanuts cartoon where Lucy asks a glum Charlie Brown what he's worrying about. Charlie replies, I feel inferior. Oh, says Lucy, You shouldn't worry about that. Lots of people have that feeling. What, that they're inferior, Charlie asks. No, Lucy replies, that you're inferior. (laughs) Shocking, right? I, I think most of us can probably relate to Charlie Brown. I certainly did when I read that. We don't like feeling weak. Right, We would much rather be on the Lucy side of the equation, strong in our own eyes, or at least in the eyes of other people. We don't like feeling helpless. We wanna feel competent. We wanna feel like we're on, on top of things and everybody else knows it and agrees with us. And, and I would argue that part of that longing to feel strong is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good desire to enjoy life as God created it to be. In other words, the good part is God didn't create us with failing memories and aging bodies. He didn't create us that way. Much of the weakness, uh, the limitation, the ineptitude that we encounter is a result of living life in a fallen world corrupted by evil, right? That's a real part of our existence. So, so part of our longing to, to be strong is a longing for redemption. It's a longing for God to make right what sin has made wrong. That's the good part. But I would argue, friends, that the lion's share of our desire to be strong is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Because I think more often than not, we don't so much want redemption as much as we want independence. We crave control. We, we spend our entire lives trying to become the self-sufficient creator, when in reality, we're what? We're creatures, dependent creatures. God created you, you might not know this, but hear this, God created you to need him to rely on him, to find your strength and wisdom and joy in him and him alone. So weakness in that sense is not a problem we eliminate, it's a strength we embrace. Huge difference between those two attitudes. And so J.I. Packer concludes, the truth however is that in many respects and certainly in spiritual matters, We are all weak and inadequate and we need to face it. Sin which disrupts all relationships has disabled us across the board. We need to be aware of our limitations and to let this awareness work in us a humility and a self-distrust and a realization of our helplessness on our own. And thus, we may learn our need to depend on Christ, our Savior and Lord, at every turn of the road, to practice that dependence as one of the constant habits of our heart, and thereby to discover what Paul discovered before us, when I am weak, then I am strong. That's another good book to read, by the way. J.I. Packer, Weakness is the Way. But he makes a good point, right, That, that Paul discovered something that God led Jacob in a process of also discovering. And then I think God wants to lead all of us today through these chapters and discovering again. And that's this friends, salvation comes not to those who think they are strong, but to those who know they are weak and wholly rely on the mercy of God. That's that's really what God has been trying to teach Jacob from Genesis 25, when he first showed up, that salvation comes not to those who think they are strong, but to those who know they are weak, and wholly rely on the mercy of God. It's what these two chapters are all about. Think of it this way, in the kingdom of God, it's the weak who prevail. That's who prevails. And these two chapters are all about the kind of weakness that prevails in the kingdom of God. And so I wanna briefly look at what this weakness consists of. So think think of the outline of this sermon this way, okay? What marks the weak people who prevail in the kingdom of God? If salvation comes not to those who think they are strong, but to those who know they are weak and cast themselves, rely wholly on the mercy of God, What what do those kinds of people look like? Because that's one of those statements that's really easy to acknowledge. Oh yeah, salvation comes to those who know they're weak, rely on God, now hold on a second. What's that look like? So I'm gonna give you three marks of the weak that prevail, okay? Here's the first one, main point one. They respond to their circumstances in light of God's promises. I think that's the main point of the whole first 21 verses. So just a quick review, when Genesis 32 opens, Jacob's just finished roughly 20 years of indentured servitude to his father-in-law, Laban, and now Jacob's a wealthy man. By the grace of God, he has abundant possessions, a whole posse of kiddos, and he's heading home to the land of Canaan, which is the land that God promised to give him, the land God told him to return back to, but he's also heading in the direction of his estranged older brother, Esau. Decades earlier, Esau swore that he was gonna kill Jacob. You're dead, buddy. And it's what sent Jacob fleeing penniless from Canaan in the first place. And Genesis is very clear that that animosity was largely Jacob's fault. Because he deceived his brother Esau, not once, but twice, right? So first first Esau his birthright, and then he deceived his father to blessing him instead of his older brother Esau. And so you can imagine this growing sense of dread as Jacob is seeking to obey God's command to go back to Canaan. Maybe you've you've felt this sometime where where you're aware, I think what I'm doing is pleasing to the Lord, I'm trying to obey God's commands, but I've got this growing dread that something terrible is about to happen. He's he's really helpless and he has no satellite footage. He has no advanced intel on what Esau's gonna do and in the midst of that drama and uncertainty, God meets Jacob. Look at verse one, chapter 32. He went on his way. And the angels of God met him and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. Don't just blow through that. Do you realize how kind that was before Jacob had received any news of impending disaster, anything about the 400 men, God prepared Jacob by reminding Jacob of the promise that he'd made 20 years earlier. In other words, Jacob, don't forget, I'm with you. You're not alone. All all that you see around you, all that you're about to learn is coming at you is not all that's real, okay? This is my world. You're not alone. I'm with you, Jacob. And, And I think there's a lesson for us in that, friends. Namely, don't wait until the next trial comes, and God feels a million miles away to meditate on and savor the gift of the presence of God. Don't wait. Allow God's word to to saturate your heart with the the reality of his nearness now so that when suffering comes that you didn't see coming, Jacob didn't see 400 men in advance, no satellite intel, okay? So that when it does come because you've meditated and lingered and, and soaked your heart in the reality of God's presence with you beforehand that when it does come, God remains at the functional center of your whole mental universe. Look at verse three. Jacob sends messengers to announce his return to Esau in Courier's favor. And notice he identifies himself as what? As Esau's servant and Esau as his lord. Now again, quick review, if you haven't been along for the ride on this series, that the blessing Jacob stole from Esau included a prophetic promise that Jacob would be lord over his brothers. You may remember that. So he could have waved that in Esau's face. Hello Esau, this is your Lord speaking. But he didn't do that. He does the exact opposite, right? He he addresses Esau in terms of deep honor and respect. I think it's an early sign that, that Jacob's no longer finding his identity in pushing to the front of the line. He's been doing a lot of that up to this point. But you can imagine his dismay. I mean, just put yourself in his shoes. When the messengers return and they announce that Esau is heading his way with 400 men. Look at verse seven. Side note, you didn't really need 400 men to greet your brother, just in general. So that would have been mildly distressing. And Jacob reminds us of that when he says, verse seven, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So what's he do? Well, first he tries to take prudent action. He splits his family and possessions into two camps, hoping at least one of them will survive this coming onslaught, or at least what he thinks is an onslaught. And then he does something that he's never done before. You know what that is? He prays. He prays, he cries out to God for mercy, which is exactly what we need to do when we come face to face with our weakness, right? Or in Jacob's case, with the relational fallout of his own sin. So he's, he's taking prudent action, he's not passive, but, but he prays and notice in his prayer, he first addresses the Lord as the God of my father Abraham. The God of my father, Isaac. Do you realize that's not religious talk? That's not like, okay, what are the phrases I'm supposed to do to like kind of address God that unlock the door to divine favor? Dearest, heavenly, whatever, whatever. What did that Christian say in small group last week? No. It's not what's going on. He's recounting the covenant faithfulness of God to his dad, to his, his grandfather. But he knows God isn't just a dusty page in the family photo album. Right? Because the same God has also spoken to Jacob. And what did he say? Return home that I may do good to you. It's the whole reason Jacob's heading toward Esau in the first place. Here's the big picture. Okay, focus on this. Jacob, when he prays, when, when weakness confronts him and he responds by praying, he's addressing God and relating to God in light of who God has revealed himself to be in the pages of his word. That's what he's doing. So friend, if, if suffering in your life is causing you to ask questions about the Lord, cause, causing you to wrestle with what, I'm just starting to think more about God I'm not sure what I think but I'm, I'm wrestling I'm wondering about this whole relationship with him thing here's my encouragement to you okay don't start that process with your thoughts about God start with God's thoughts about himself <laughs> okay read his word listen to the promises he's made and, and talk to him accordingly that's what Jacob's doing that's how he's praying look at verse 10 God, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Notice 400 men coming at him, weakness confronting him. Jacob's not going to God and demanding, if you want me to follow you, you better give me the deliverance I deserve and fast. Fast. He's not saying that. He's he's beginning with God's worthiness and then remembering his unworthiness. Friends, we need to do the exact same thing when we feel weak. We need to remember that, that God doesn't owe us, we owe God. You'll never reach a point in your life where you've put so many good works, so many tithing checks in the God good work piggy bank that at some point when suffering comes, you can take it back up to God and say, come on man, I, I scratched your back, scratch mine. Never reach that point. We owe God, he doesn't owe us because we're sinners. We've disobeyed God's laws and, and rejected his authority as a rightful king. And we need to pray accordingly, okay? Not, not with the arrogance of, of those who have an ax to grind, but with the humility of those who know they need mercy. We don't deserve the kindness of God, ever. And that, that humility is critical, friend, because it's only in that, that humility that faith can grow. You don't have that humility, you approach God saying, give me what I deserve, because I did good things for you. Faith will never grow in that soil, because it's proud, it's not humble. Look, Look at the last two words in his prayer, I read them earlier, and now I have become two camps. I was so humbled by that this week, friends. Why do I say that? Because in context, he's basically saying, Lord, you've been so good to me. I've got two camps worth of people and possessions. Why was that humbling for me? Well, because I think I could have had a completely different interpretation of that particular reality that sounds more like this. The only reason I become two camps instead of one is because I'm about to get annihilated by Esau unless you do something, God, so why are you waiting so long? I mean, it's clear he, he sees the danger, right? He's honest with the Lord. I'm afraid, I'm distressed, but listen friend, Jacob doesn't let fear and distress govern his response. He doesn't look to fear and distress and say, fear, distress, give me my clues, my talking points. What do I do right now? I'm listening to you, fear. I'm listening to you, distress. No, what does he do? He interprets his circumstances in light of the goodness of God. He doesn't look at two camps and say, man, this should have been one camp but we're not for Esau and the fact that God hasn't intervened yet. No, he looks at the two camps and his interpretation of that reality is an interpretation of governed by the goodness of God Lord I've, I've become two camps so, so he's interpreting his circumstances in light of the goodness of God and then he's responding to his circumstances in light of the promises of God look back at verse 11 he really captures this core dynamic here of honesty with God abiding trust in God please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children Didn't notice this friends but you said you said something god you're you're not a god who is silent you have spoken you have revealed yourself you have made promises to me you said i will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for a multitude Friend, if you're a Christian, do you know that God and Jesus Christ has made the exact same towering promise of goodness to you? Exact same thing. You you can go to God, confronted with your weakness, and interpret that situation in light of his goodness, and respond to that situation in light of his promises in his word. Why? Because he's made the same promises to you in Christ. Psalm 31, 19 Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. That's what Jacob needed. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. So what's the first mark? of the weakness that prevails. Well, the weak who prevail, the weak man, the weak woman who prevail, they respond to their circumstances in light of God's promises. They interpret their suffering in light of God's goodness. That's the first mark, okay? Here's the second one. What's up with this, these weak people who prevail in God's kingdom? They reject the pride of despondence for the humility of, of dependence. Look in here at verses 22 through 32. If you were following what was reading, you know that later that same night, Jacob prepares a present for Esau. Uh, though it might be a understatement to call it a present because it was more like a unreal, princely, staggering amount of wealth it's 550 animals. And by the way, camels in those days were, were like luxury cars today. You just normal wealthy people didn't have camels. But Jacob's just like, have a bunch of my camels. And verse 20, if you look there, it kind of gives us an, an inside look at why Jacob's doing all this. What's his goal? I may appease him, Esau, with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. What kind of man talks like that? That's, that's the talk of a man who feels the weight of his guilt. Right? He's gone from I deserve it all. That was wrong. He feels that, and, and his present is a, it's a humble act of restitution, right? It's an expression of repentance designed to restore part of the blessing that he stole all those years ago. But notice that before Jacob could meet Esau, God comes back to meet Jacob again why does he do that second time God's shown up in some way I think it's for this reason it's because the favor Jacob needs the most is not the favor of Esau it's the favor of God that was his greatest need and so it's dark and and Jacob's all alone and suddenly a, a man approaches and begins to grapple with him I won't act that out, but <laughs> you can imagine. And in a very real sense, church, Jacob has been wrestling his entire life, metaphorically. He's been striving with all the, the cunning and wit he could muster to, to wrangle God's blessing to the ground. And that, that lifelong temptation of, tr- of trying to create through his own power what could only be received as a gift of God's grace that comes to a head in verse 22 and initially we know nothing of this assailant's identity there's a lot of mystery here more questions than answers we know the struggle is prolonged and painful and, and continues verse 24 until the breaking of the day. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. By the way, that word touched is not a particularly violent word in Hebrew. He just touched it. And so as the reader, we start to wonder, this assailant doesn't seem entirely ordinary. And then our suspicion is confirmed in verse 28, where we learn that Jacob is wrestling with none other than God in human form. Friend, in allowing the match to continue all night, please hear this. God isn't revealing the limits of his power. Okay? He is displaying the extent of his mercy. Let me explain. God is confronting Jacob with a vivid illustration of his life story. It's like hitting rewind. You know how photos for all you Apple people will just, hey, here's a memory from a while ago. God's, God's confronting Jacob with a, his life story, which is what? Trying to achieve blessing through his own strength instead of relying on the God who provides. That's Jacob, that, that's been his M.O. And when the Lord finally decides to dislocate Jacob's hip, he's showing the man something about himself that he desperately needs to see. You know what that is? Jacob, you're weak. (laughs) Buddy. It's like, I was gonna say, look me in the eyes. It's a literal look (laughs) me in the eyes. You're weak. For most all your life, you thought you were strong. You thought you were sufficient. You thought you could manage things and make it all work. But you are not, Jacob. Your strength is futile. You can't achieve, create, and secure the blessing you've longed to know. What is now true of your body, pal, has been true of your soul since the day you were born. You can't win, Jacob. Jacob. You should be grateful I just touched your hip. It's hopeless. Give up. Stop it. Verse 26. Let me go. For the day is broken. In that moment, friends, Jacob had a choice to make that you need to make. And that really we have to make. When we inevitably come face to face with our weakness, think about this, what do most people do? Face to face with our weakness, you turn around and it's, Pew! I'm weak. They get despondent, right? Hopeless, depressed, why keep trying? Why, why keep getting up and drinking my orange juice if today's just gonna be another, another exercise in running smack into the wall of my insufficiency. I thought I could be strong when I was in college, but I'm not, I, I can't. It's just so clear, I failed. If only I'd made that choice. If only I'd finished that degree. If only I'd married that girl, or taken that job. And and it's just slippery slope, regret, bitterness. Off you go. What's the assumption behind that interpretation I just gave you? Think with me here, okay? The assumption behind that interpretation I just gave you is an exceedingly arrogant assumption. That if I had only found a way to be strong, then everything would have worked out. Do you see the problem with that? Okay, but behind behind my sigh of despondency is wounded pride pride that even in defeat is still clinging to this illusion that with the right combination of actions, I could have avoided the scourge of weakness. That's arrogance, friends. That's pride. And thankfully, Jacob didn't make that choice in that moment when he was confronted once again in a very personal way by God with his weakness. He didn't run toward the sigh of despondency. What did he do? Listen to Alan Ross on this. When God touched the strongest sinew of Jacob, the wrestler, his strength shriveled, and with it, Jacob's persistent self-confidence. With the crippling touch, Jacob's struggle took a new direction. With the same scrappy persistence, he clung to his opponent for a blessing. His goal, hear this, was now different. Now crippled in his natural strength, he became bold in faith. Look at verse 26. What does faith sound like, friend? Faith sounds like this. I will not let you go unless you bless me. I won't let you go. When the Lord gave him an out, literally, when Jacob could have crumbled in wounded pride, he refused. And in the midst of his weakness, in the midst of his pain, he finally declared what had been true all along. What's that? God, I cannot save myself. I need you to grant me. Gift of salvation that only you can give and I'm not gonna stop clinging to you, holding on to you until you do, Lord. I'm calling out to you, I'm crying out to you because only you have the words of eternal life and I refuse to turn away until you save me because only you can. Have mercy on me, God, and deliver me. That's what's bound up in verse 26. It's the humility of dependence. He made, when faced with his weakness, the right choice. Instead of embracing the arrogant slide of despondency, <laughs> he embraced the humility of dependence. Look at verse 27. What, how did the Lord respond? And he said to him, What's your name? (laughs) Okay, now, this is another one of those moments where where the Lord didn't ask because he was ignorant any more than he wrestled because he was impotent. (laughs) He asked Jacob because Jacob needed to acknowledge something about himself. He needed to acknowledge the reason that he needed God's blessing and mercy in the first place. What was that reason? It was the fact that he was a Jacob. I'm Jacob. I'm a cheater. I'm a grasper. Lord, it's not just something I've done. It's who I am. It's my name. It's my identity, apart from your blessing. And unless you save me in the midst of my sin, my sin is going to kill me, literally. And the moment, this is incredible. The moment Jacob made that confession, God did something. 28. Then he, God said, your name, your identity, who you are, the banner over your life shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Or he strives with God, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Verse 29. And there he blessed him. Now think about this, because you may be thinking, wait a minute, God just gave him a gold star for striving. I thought that was the entire thing, Matthew, you were saying we're not supposed to do. Well, think carefully here, okay? The Lord didn't just give him a new name, right? It wasn't just a new ID, congrats, your license now says Maryland or something, okay? He gave him a new identity. And this identity, he strives with God, would do two things. It would remind him, one, of the futility of striving for salvation through faith in Jacob. And at the same time, the blessing of striving for salvation with his faith in the Lord. The former, what, never prevails. The latter always prevails. Always He prevailed through faith. At at the lowest moment of his weakness, when he was completely unable to save himself, and he cried out to the Lord in his trouble, God saved him. God blessed him. Jacob finally prevailed, except he didn't prevail this time through his own strength. He didn't summon his inner courage and keep going. He prevailed through trust. He prevailed through faith. Why? Because in the midst of his weakness, he cast himself on the mercy of God and refused to let go. That's why. What's the point? The weak who prevail, they reject the pride of despondence for the humility of dependence. And so I ask you, friend, today, which one of those are you gonna choose? We're all Jacob. We're all weak, not just need some help with my resume, we are sinners. We're desperately dependent on the Lord to save us from the sin that separates us from him so that we can see him face to face and live. And that's what Jesus will do for you, friend. If you're willing to forsake your sin and cry out to him for deliverance, Jesus will save you. So what do you need to do in light of all this? You need to cling to Christ. You need to cling to Christ and refuse to let go until you receive the gift of God's deliverance. It might not come at the time you prefer. It might not come in the form that you anticipate. You you may still walk through your life with a pride-destroying, humility-preserving limp in your hip, but even that is a gift from God to you because it will remind you of what has always been true. I'm weak. I'm weak. But if you cling to Christ friends, salvation will come and Jesus will get you safely home. The only requirement is you have to reject the pride of despondence, embrace the humility of dependence. That's the second mark of the weak who prevail. Here's the final one, we'll end with this. The weak who prevail, they receive God's deliverance as an expression of God's goodness. They receive his deliverance as an expression of his goodness, we're looking at chapter 33. So remember from the world's perspective, Jacob is an abiding picture of weakness. That's all he's got now, okay? He's entering the day sleepless, exhausted, and limping. And coming at him is an angry older brother with 400 people that that don't have fond feelings toward Jacob. That's a pretty good picture of weakness in the eyes of the world. But you know, from God's perspective, what Jacob was in that moment? He was the picture of strength. Picture of strength because he chose to cling to the Lord. But but notice this, look at verse one of chapter 33. His faith doesn't deliver him from suffering. He lifts up his eyes, Genesis 33, one, and sees Esau coming, and 400 men with him. Don't, don't we sometimes expect the opposite of that, right? What, what do we say? We say, Lord, I mean, I know in the past I, I was fighting my weakness, I was arrogant, I wasn't depending on you, trusting you, but, but now I am, like I've had my moment, I've, I've made my choice, and so why am I still suffering? We get impatient, right? It's back to the like, maybe faith will make God owe me. What did I say earlier? God never owes us, (laughs) we always owe him. God didn't take Esau out of the picture because he wanted to prove his faithfulness to Jacob (laughs) and to reveal his power and show him that, that the blessing he received back in verse 29 wasn't a joke, it was real. That blessing was just as real as the 400 men bearing down on him right now. God wanted to show him that, so he didn't take Esau out. And if you notice here at the beginning, Jacob's still playing favorites, right? Female servants in the front, favorite wife in the back. What's that tell us? (sighs) He's a work in progress. (sighs) Even as he walked the path of humble dependence. Hey, look at that Christian, they're sinning. Well, you know what? Maybe they're also walking the path of humble dependence. Were works in progress. And thankfully for Jacob, the resolution comes quickly. Look at verse four. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. The, the Lord delivered Jacob and it was this beautiful picture of, of forgiveness and Esau accepts Jacob's gift. He's, he's confirming by accepting the gift his decision to sow mercy to the brother who needed mercy. And Jacob can't help but make the critical connection. Look at verse 10, chapter 33. For I have seen your face, he says to Esau, which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. That, that wasn't a hypothetical analogy. When he said it was like seeing the face of God, as of, well, one day I sort of imagined that maybe seeing God would be like you. No. He had just come face to face with God. And God had spared his life. And now he comes face face to face with Esau, and Esau likewise spares his life. So what's going on? On every side, Jacob is overwhelmed by mercy. Mercy from God, mercy from Esau, mercy and weakness, and he receives his brother's kindness as an expression of kindness from the Lord. And if you look at verse 11, chapter 33, you'll notice that Jacob credits the grace of God, not his years of hard labor with all this blessing that he enjoys. Please accept my blessing Esau that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Do you know saying that was a stunning transformation for Jacob? Why? Because that word blessing is the exact same word used back in Genesis 27, 35 to 36, where Jacob steals his brother's blessing. What's the point? When God awakens faith in the Lord, humble dependence on him, you know what we no longer have to do? We no longer have to run around oppressing people so that we can maintain some self-created superiority and goodness and life that we want. We're freed, right? We're, We're freed as recipients of God's blessing, completely dependent on his blessing, to pass that blessing along to others. So Jacob goes from trying to steal blessing to giving blessing. That's how faith in God will change your relationships and he really becomes full circle here. What began as pride, I can make my life work on my own, God transformed into humility. I need mercy. Not just from God, but, but from my brother. Think about this, friend. Self-sufficient, arrogant people never confess their need for mercy. They don't. God's people do. It's one of the defining marks of a Christian, why? Because we we live with this abiding awareness of just how merciful God has been to us. And for that reason, followers of Christ, they're marked by, if genuine followers, deep humility toward men. Because we know we're recipients of mercy, and we know like Jacob in verse five, verse 11, that, that we receive God's provision not as something we deserve, but as an expression of unmerited favor. And like Jacob in verse 8, we freely acknowledge our need for unmerited favor from everybody around us. In other words, a Christian doesn't hide their weakness by grasping for superiority. We confess our weakness. We pursue authentic community. We share our weakness confident that God will deliver us in our weakness no matter what people do, no matter what people say, no matter what people think of us because salvation comes not to those who think they are strong but because they know they're weak and they're depending wholly on the mercy of God. So take that for a spin the next time a friend corrects you that we could prevail, receive God's deliverance as an expression of his goodness. I'll conclude with this. In Genesis thirty-three eighteen, look there. Jacob finally gets back to Canaan. God promised he would bring him home. He told him he would do that, but God also refused to allow Jacob to enter Canaan as Jacob he brought the man to a point where he was willing to look to God for blessing and salvation instead of trying to create it for himself. He he taught Jacob what it meant to prevail, not just despite his brokenness, but through his brokenness. Because it was when Jacob was most weak that God showed himself most strong. And friend, that is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. It's all about that. His, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's all about salvation from sin and death, victory over those things through weakness. Not because weakness is some sort of secret pathway to discovering your inner strength, but because weakness, confessed weakness, a gladly acknowledged weakness, weakness wholeheartedly dependent on the mercy of God kind of weakness is a prerequisite for experiencing God's salvation. What does the prophet Zechariah say? Chapter four, verse six. Then the Lord said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, we are all Jacobs. We're all weak. And the good news of Genesis 32 and 33 and the warning of these chapters is that salvation comes not to those who think they are strong, but to those who know they are weak and wholly rely on the mercy of God. God became for Jacob not just his grandfather's God or his dad's God. But by the end of the chapter, he became what? El Elohe Israel. God, the God of Israel my God. Jacob didn't make God God. Any more than you this morning could make God God by believing in him. But Jacob chose to trust God in the midst of his weakness. And when he did that, and only when he did that, he came to know and experience God as the savior he is. Let's pray and ask that God would help us to do that. Lord Jesus, we are grateful. We are so thankful for the way this word humbles us and confronts us with the reality of weakness. Father, you know we live in a world where all kinds of people who do not know you and have no interest in following you are often so much better than the Christians in this room and in churches around the country at being real and honest about their weakness. But Father, you, you warn us, you instruct us in these chapters that, that salvation isn't, blessing isn't just the result of saying, yep, yeah, we're all messed up. Father, it's the reward of responding to that by wholly relying on your mercy. I pray that you would, this week, cause our arrogant hearts to reject the pride of despondency and embrace the humility of dependence every time we see our weakness. Amen.